Bringing you the latest case law updates on the legal aspects of law enforcement. This is Broadcast Blue. In this Leah One case study, we're going to take a look at the case United States versus Davis. This decision was issued by the Seventh Circuit on the 7th of May, 2021. For the purposes of our case study, the relevant facts are as follows. On the 1st of March, 2017, at around 2.45 in the afternoon, a police officer of the Holly Springs, North Carolina Police Department stopped a gray Honda Accord driven by the defendant in this case, Howard Davis. The officer stopped Davis because he believed that the tinning on the Accord's windows was too dark in violation of North Carolina statute that governs tinted windows. The officer approached Davis and explained that he'd pulled Davis over because the vehicle's window tent appeared to be too dark, and he asked for and received Davis's license and proof of insurance. And he was running all of his checks, doing a relevant search of the databases, including the wants and warrants uh, background criminal history check. And the search revealed that Davis's license was valid but he had a history of felony drug charges and convictions. Two additional uniformed officers arrived in a separate patrol car. They parked behind the initial officer's vehicle, and they activated their car lights as well. So about three minutes goes by into the stop, and these three officers are discussing this. And Davis put his hand out of the window and made a pointing gesture indicating that he was just going to leave. Then he did just that. He drove off without his license or without his insurance card. They both still in the possession of the officer who had made the stop. And the officers gave chase after Davis. Davis raced through a residential neighborhood. The speed limit in the neighborhood was only 25 miles an hour, but at times he reached speeds of up to 50, doubling this neighborhood's speed limit. The pursuit continued until Davis reached a dead-end cul-de-sac, but he didn't stop there. He drove between two houses and into someone's backyard and got out of the vehicle carrying a backpack, and then he started running, and he ran on foot, and he ran into a swamp, and he got stuck in knee-high water. Um, The officer... Um, who was giving chase also on foot he was about seven to ten yards behind davis at this point he drew his service weapon and ordered davis to come out of the swamp now davis complied he returned to dry land he dropped the backpack and he lied down on his stomach the officer then patted him down and found a large amount of cash on his person he handcuffed him behind his back and placed him under arrest for several traffic violations including felony flee to elude so he's been arrested he's lying on the ground on his stomach with his hands uh, handcuffed behind his back and after this arrest had taken place the officer unzipped this backpack that he had carried into the swamp with him it was closed um, but he carried it back out of the swamp with him and it was it was sitting uh, beside him as he laid on the ground with his hands handcuffed behind his back the officer unzipped it he looked inside he found a large amount of cash two plastic bags containing what appeared to be cocaine. The officers at that point then searched Davis's vehicle and discovered a digital scale, a bag that contained bundles of cash and other items. Now, while they were doing this, the officers also received a report that a witness had observed Davis toss a gun, toss a firearm out of his window while he was fleeing. 
and acting on this information, the officers recovered a 45 caliber handgun from Davis's path of flight through the residential area as he drove the vehicle. On the 7th of June, 2017, a federal grand jury returned a three count indictment charging Davis with count one, possession with the intent to distribute 28 grams or more of cocaine base and an unspecified quantity of cocaine in violation of Title 21 of the United States Code, Section 841. Count two, possession of a firearm in furtherance of a drug trafficking offense in violation of 18 United States Code, Section 924. And the third count, being a felon in possession of a firearm in violation of Title 18 of the United States Code, Sections 922G and 924. Now, prior to trial, Davis filed a motion to suppress the evidence found both in the backpack and in the vehicle. He argued the evidence should be suppressed because of the officer's warrantless searches that they violated his rights under the Fourth Amendment. The district court denied Davis's motion to suppress, and on the 11th of September 2018, after a trial, a jury returned a guilty verdict on all three counts. Now, the district court judge dismissed Davis's felon in possession conviction, but then sentenced Davis to 420 months imprisonment on the two remaining counts. Davis filed a notice of appeal, arguing the trial court erred in not granting the motion to suppress the evidence found in the backpack and in the automobile. The Seventh Circuit defined the issue on appeal in this way, and this is a quote. The issue we confront in this appeal is whether the Supreme Court's holding in Gantt applies beyond the automobile context to the search of the backpack. But there are really two issues on appeal, and both are discussed in the opinion. The first and most significant issue is the one presented by the court, regarding the applicability of the Gantt holding to the backpack. But there is a second issue, namely that's whether the search of the automobile was reasonable under the second Gantt exception. Both of these issues were discussed in the case, and therefore I'm going to discuss both of them here. Okay, before we start talking about how the court ruled on the issues that were presented in this particular case, let's use this opportunity and use the case itself to have a review, to review the applicable law and talk about the basis um, of the decision. And some decisions are better than others when it comes to this. In some opinions, they provide just cursory uh, glances, cursory uh, references to the applicable law. But in this particular case, they did a really good job of putting together um, a timeline of the decisions, the Supreme Court decisions, as well as a pretty much a flow of the decision-making process to explain why it is that they ruled the, the way that they did. So let's take a few minutes to actually look at the law in this case and use this as a review for the whole concept of search incident to arrest. Let's start by pointing out that a warrantless search by a police officer is presumptively invalid. It's, there's a presumption that it is a violation of the Fourth Amendment. And the only way that you can overcome this presumption is if demonstrating that the search itself, this warrantless search, falls within one of the narrow and well-delineated exceptions to the Fourth uh, Amendment warrant requirement. And that's um, direct language from the Supreme Court in the case Flippo versus West Virginia back in 1999. So we know that a warrantless search is presumptively invalid 
And the only way you can overcome that presumption is by showing that it fits one of the well-delineated exceptions um, to the warrant requirement. And what we, what I uh, typically call a JRE, a judicially recognized exception. And then the court went on further to note that one exception to the warrant requirement authorizes uh, authorizing searches is the search incident to a lawful arrest. So one of the exceptions is the the search incident to arrest. Now this a search incident to arrest or search in, uh, incident to lawful arrest, it's both the same thing whether you put the word lawful in there or not. The, the whole con- SIA as we uh, commonly refer to it, that search incident to arrest. This exception um, interestingly enough goes all the way back to 1914. The, it has its origins in a case that was really important for other reasons, the Weeks versus United States case of Supreme Court decision, like I said, back in 1914. Now, I talk about Weeks a lot when I'm doing uh, teaching Fourth Amendment law, teaching search and seizure law. Weeks is a very, very important decision for several reasons, but the, the most important of which, the thing we talk about the most, is uh, Weeks is where the exclusionary rule was first created. In that, remember the lottery tickets there and uh, out there in um, uh, Mr. Weeks and the, those lottery tickets, they went into his house in order to get – they. They excluded those from evidence, and so Weeks versus United States was the birth of the exclusionary rule. I say birth and not creation because it wasn't until 1961 in the Map versus Ohio decision that it was actually the exclusionary rule was actually applied to states, and for the longest period of time there, nearly 50 years, it only applied to the feds. Um, to federal action. But that's what we think of them typically when we think of Weeks versus United States. But it was also important for search and incident to arrest because it was in that Supreme Court decision in 1914 that the Supreme Court acknowledged um, the common law, uh, the common law rule at, at the time and its applicability under the Fourth Amendment and acknowledged the government's right, which they said had always been recognized under English and American law to search the person of the accused when legally arrested to discover and seize the fruits or evidences of crime. And so we're talking about the search of the person, a search actually of the person, their clothing and their body, when they were legally arrested was recognized as a Fourth Amendment right and an exception of the Fourth Amendment based on this English common law back in 1914. Um, so that was, a, that was an important decision where this search incident to arrest was formally recognized, at least under Fourth Amendment principles. And then um, 50, what, 54 years later, 55 years later, in 1969, we had the seminal case. If there's only one case that you remember in search incident to arrest, hopefully that's not the case. Um, But if there's only one case, if you had to say this is the most important search incident to arrest case, it's this one. Chimmel versus California from 1969. In this decision, the Supreme Court articulated the limits um, of the search incident to arrest exception and emphasized that it was reasonable for arresting officers to search the person being arrested and the area within his reach. So now it's extended beyond just the person like we had in weeks to areas within the reach of the person um, in order to remove any weapons that the arrestee might seek to use in order to resist arrest 
or effectuate escape, in other words, officer safety, and two, in order to prevent the concealment or the destruction of evidence. So there's this two prong or two reasons, the principles, the twin principles or twin rationales, as they say, of Chimmel versus California. One, to, to uh, prevent the, the arrestee from accessing weapons or a, a method of escape, in, in other words, officer safety, or two, in order to prevent the concealment or the destruction of evidence. So there's the court, as a result of these two purposes, now this is the purpose of the JRA, the, the, the twin rationale, the twin purposes of this judicially recognized exception. And under this rationale, um, the court concluded in the, in the Chimmel case that there was ample justification for the search of the arrestee's person and the area within his immediate control, construing that phase to mean the area from within which he might gain possession of a weapon or destructible evidence. So this area within there is immediate control and Chimmel would include objects. It would include bags or other containers that were in the area of immediate control. And so that's that was the, the importance of Chimmel. In JREs, all JR, these judicially recognized exceptions, they're very narrow. Um, they're typically narrow, unless it's a, just a, a blank check. Most of them are very, very narrow, and they have a certain set of rules have to apply, right? And um, certain uh, conditions have to be met. And there are purposes. These conditions are based on the purposes of the JRE. So you have to look at the reason for the JRE, the rationale, if you will, whenever you're trying to apply one of these judicially recognized exceptions in search incident to arrest is certainly no exception in that regard. So after the Chimmel decision four years later in United States versus Robinson, the Supreme Court held that the custodial arrest of a suspect based on probable cause is a reasonable intrusion under the Fourth Amendment, and that intrusion being lawful, the search incident to the arrest of a person's clothing and inspections of items found in that clothing required no additional justification. So in United States versus Robinson, the Supreme Court said, hey, look, going back the weeks, notwithstanding Chimmel, going all the way back the weeks, the court says, look, when you when you arrest someone, you can search that person's clothing with no additional justification. And in other words, it's not conditional. Um, whenever you arrest someone, just the fact that the person's under arrest is going to get you into the clothing of that person. You're going to be able to search their pockets and search their socks and their shoes and their underwear and any, anywhere else, right, on their, on their person. Um, it's going to be a, a search incident to arrest that is pretty much a given, requiring no additional justification. So the, the, the original common law rule that had developed over, over you know, years and years and years and then was recognized as a Fourth Amendment judicially recognized exception back in 1914 in the Weeks decision, it's kind of reiterated almost 60 years later in the Robinson decision. And so if you have the search, if you arrest someone, you can search their person and inspect the items that you find on their person without any further justification. You don't have to articulate any other facts. There's no other requirement other than the fact the person be lawfully arrested. Now, you know, we've got different types. Based on the Chimmel decision, we have two different areas that basically can then be searched. We've got the areas that can be searched that um, are on the person's body, the clothing that they're wearing, you know, that's it's in their clothing on their body, and we have containers um, that are 
that are with that are accessible that are in the area of what in Chimel they said within the area of immediate control and we've always talked about the wingspan or the lunging distance for that so there's two kind of separate distinctions here right and in Robinson it said look you don't have to have any further justification to search what's on a person right well then we had new york versus belton in 1981 and this came out you know eight years uh, eight years after the robinson decision and in the the belton case the supreme court held that uh, when a policeman has made a lawful custodial arrest of the occupant of an automobile he may as a contemporaneous incident of that arrest search the passenger compartment of the automobile so now they've they've said they've they've extended if you will this concept of the search incident to arrest to the passenger compartment um, of the automobile and in light of the robinson decision that came eight years earlier where it was basically said no additional justification was needed for the search of a person in belton they the court extended that into areas within the immediate areas within their control which is the second of the two areas mentioned in chimmel and so now we've got this without additional justification rationale kind of being applied to the uh, areas within immediate control although the court didn't do that uh, per se in belton the lower courts over time the the lower courts used the Belton decision to treat the ability to search the vehicle incident to arrest of a recent occupant as a police entitlement requiring no additional justification, just like it was in Robinson of, of the person uh, searching uh, the, uh, someone's person, um, rather than as an exception justified by both of the twin rationales of Chimmel, right? And so, um, and there were some problems with that. And, and indeed, in the Belton decision itself, um, it, it created some issues that later presented themselves, especially in 2004 in the Thornton versus uh, United States decision. Okay, so then that's going to lead us to this next case, which is very, very important. And it is the Arizona versus Gantt decision. And this was a case that came out, and I remember when this case came out, I was uh, in teaching at Fletzy back in 2009. Um, the Supreme Court uh, kind of had to make a decision, right? They're, they were looking at the, the, what happened to search the passenger compartment of the vehicle. Just to refresh your recollection, uh, since it's important, let's, let me talk about this for a second. Arizona versus Gantt, um, they basically arrested this person for driving on a suspended license and then searched the automobile and found contraband in the glove compartment. And the argument was that you know this, this exceeded the scope and this was an unreasonable search incident to arrest um, under the rationale of Chimmel. And the Supreme Court um, agreed um, and basically shot down this notion that Belton created this uh, this rule where you didn't have to have any further justification, um, that kind of the extension of Robinson there. The court reemphasized the significance of these twin rationales in Chimmel, the officer safety and the destruction of evidence, and as defining the scope of the search incident to arrest. And first, the court noted that if you read Belton as authorizing a vehicle search incident to every recent occupant's arrest, it would untether the rule from the justifications underlying the Chimmel exception, right? And relying on the rationales articulated in Chimmel, this concept of officer safety and the preservation of evidence, the court concluded that the police can search a vehicle incident to a recent occupant's arrest 
only when the arrestee is unsecured and when within the reaching distance of the passenger compartment at the time of the search. Right. So the ultimate inquiry um, under the first Gantt holding, or what I call the first Gantt exception, is whether it's reasonable for the, pol- um, the police to believe that the arrestee could have access the car at the time of the search and going back to Chimmel, remembering what Chimmel told us in that regard, but they created, so that's one exception, right? So the, the rule is, is that there is no search incident to arrest, right? There, um, the general rule is, is that it's a warrantless search. The presumption is that it's invalid. It has to fit an exception. So as after Arizona versus Gantt, we don't have, um, we don't have just one exception now. We have two. There's two different holdings. They call them Gantt holdings, two different exceptions, and they have different requirements, right? So the first requirement is, is that they can search. Um, you can conduct a search incident to arrest um, if the arrest, when the arrestee is unsecured and within reaching distance of the passenger compartment of the vehicle. That's the first one, right? The second one, the 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 second Gantt decision that, or exception that was actually created in Gantt and not just a clarification of previous rulings, the, the Supreme Court concluded um, this, in the second exception that circumstances unique to the vehicle context justify a search incident to a lawful arrest when it is reasonable to believe that evidence relevant to the crime of arrest might be found in the vehicle. This is called the second Gantt holding or the second Gantt exception, and it's very, very important. Um, um, in, in the Gantt case particularly, the defendant had been arrested and was handcuffed and was in the back of the police car. So they had he was secured and out of reach of the passenger compartment, um, and, and so the first Gantt exception didn't apply to a search incident to arrest since he wasn't in the passenger compartment. And the second Gantt exception didn't apply either because it was not reasonable, reasonable to believe the vehicle contained evidence relevant to the crime of the arrest. Um, in this case, in the Gantt case, it was a traffic violation, um, and therefore the court concluded the search was unlawful. So that's really, really important, these two different Gantt exceptions, right? Uh, the Whether or not they have access to it, right? Whether they are secured and it's within their reach um, or whether you have reason to believe evidence relevant to the crime of arrest might be found in the vehicle. Before I, before I get to the decision that the court held in this particular case, let me point one more thing out about the Gantt case. And the, there's a little bit of confusions. I, I get questions about this. Hey, Mr. B., you know, it looks like that the second Gantt exception is the same thing as the automobile exception. So, you know, if you have probable cause, because it talks about a reason, reasonable belief that evidence relevant to the crime might be found in the vehicle. And that kind of sounds like reasonable belief. There's, you know, evidence of any crime in the vehicle, which is getting us to the automobile exception, right? The Carroll Doctrine or the mobile conveyance uh, exception, whatever you want to call it there. Um uh, let me point something out here, and this is a little bit higher level. Um, so if, if you if you don't follow, that's okay. Check, and you know, we'll move on. But I, for the folks that are really really into this stuff and and dig it and 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 take it to heart and really study and study, you you might be saying to yourself, self, if I have a reasonable a reasonable belief that there's evidence of any crime in the car, that's the definition of probable cause, and that is the that fits under the auspices of the automobile exception. So this gets me to something of the point I make a lot, and that is the the use of the term reasonable belief. We saw it, we've seen it in a number of decisions to where um, 
you know, the court typically uses the concept of reasonable belief to define probable cause, but we have some cases where they use the term reasonable belief and it's less than probable cause. And we can go all, all the way back to Terry itself, or we can go to um, the Maryland versus Bowie, right? And the Bowie sweeps, um, the, the concept of the extended sweep. Um, there are a number, um, there are a number of, of judicially recognized exceptions where the court, the Supreme Court has said a reasonable belief, but the lower courts have interpreted that to mean something less than probable cause. And that's exactly what's happened in this particular case. Because if you read the reasonable belief as probable cause, then the second uh, Gantt exception is meaningless. It doesn't give us anything more than what the automobile exception gives us, right? And in the automobile exception, we don't, it doesn't have to be evidence of the crime for which the person's been arrested. The person didn't have to be arrested at all. So um, it wouldn't make any sense to read the reasonable belief in this particular situation to be probable cause. And indeed, the lower courts in interpreting Gantt have not held that it was probable cause. They have recognized that if you take this reasonable belief to, to be probable cause, then the Gantt exception itself just is meaningless. It's a moot point. And so they take that to mean, like they did in the Maryland v. Bowie case, they take that concept of reasonable belief, and instead of saying that's probable cause, they liken it to reasonable suspicion, that lower standard that we use for Terry stops and Terry frisk. And so uh, that's what that, that second exception um, Basically, you can change the words of that and say that you have a reasonable suspicion the vehicle contains evidence relevant to the crime of the arrest. And so uh, that's an important thing to point out, uh, at least to those folks that, that want to get that far in the weeds. In reaching the decision, the court had two issues, as I stated earlier, to go through. And they had to be answered in order because the, depending on the answer to the first issue, uh, it might be dispositive or have an impact on the second issue. And you might recall the first issue was, does the fir first Gantt exception, you know, understanding there's two Gantt exceptions or Gantt holdings as they're referred to in this opinion, does the first Gantt holding apply to backpacks? Um, and remember, the first Gantt holding deals with whether or not the arrestee is secure and has access to the area to be searched. And in Gantt, it was the car. Well, does it apply to containers other than vehicles? And specifically, does it apply to a backpack? In, in other words, if the arrestee is secure and the backpack is not accessible, can the backpack be searched um, under this Gantt exception if it applies. If the if the first Gantt exception applies only to automobiles and not containers, then there's no issue in searching the backpack. However, if the first Gantt exception does apply to backpacks, then the backpack cannot be searched if the arrestee is secured and the backpack is not readily accessible by the arrestee. In, this, in reaching their decision, the Fourth Circuit agreed with the Third Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, and the Tenth Circuit and held that the first Gantt exception is not limited to automobiles and it applies to any wingspan searches of containers. So applying the rule of the exception to, to this particular case into backpacks, the court held that Davis was secure, noting that he was on his stomach handcuffed behind his back and there were also three officers present and no bystanders who could possibly assist Davis. And therefore, he was secure and the backpack was not accessible to him. 
and therefore the criteria of the first Gantt exception um, was not met, and the search of the backpack was unreasonable under the Fourth Amendment, and accordingly the contents of the backpack, including the large amounts of cash um, and the cocaine, um, were excluded, and, and the court held they should, should, be, should have been excluded. The motion to suppress should have been granted. Well, that leads us to the second issue, issue two, um, regarding the search of the automobile uh, and the contents that were found of the car. Well, once the court held that the search of the backpack did not meet the requirements for the first Gantt exception and they excluded the contents, the court now had to determine if the search of the automobile was reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. And you know, there's different ways to, for a warrantless search of an automobile um, to be reasonable. Now, clearly, um, the search of the vehicle was a Fourth Amendment search. And since it's done without a warrant, it's presumptively unreasonable. So the court looked to see if there was a judicially recognized exception that applied to the search in this case. And first, the court analyzed the facts to determine if the warrantless search was reasonable under the automobile exception. And under the automobile exception, the police can search a vehicle without first obtaining a warrant if the vehicle is readily mobile and probable cause exists to believe it contains contraband. And the court cited the Supreme Court decision in Pennsylvania versus LeBron. And probable cause exists when the known facts and circumstances are sufficient to warrant a man of reasonable prudence in the belief that contraband or evidence of a crime will be found. And the principal components of the determination of probable cause will be the events which occurred leading up to the stop or the search, and then uh, the decision whether these historical facts viewed from the standpoint of an objectively reasonable police officer amount to probable cause. And for this proposition, the court cited the Supreme Court decision in Ornelas versus United States. Now, so how does the first issue impact the second issue? Well, without the evidence from the backpack, remember the drugs found in the backpack, Without the evidence recovered from the backpack, then the only thing that can be determined and be used to determine whether probable cause exists to search the vehicle is basically just his flight, his subsequent arrest, and the cash that was found in his pocket when they did the search incident to arrest of his pockets, and not what was found in the backpack. And so they said while Davis's flight coupled with the cash in his pockets may have given the officers an articulable suspicion that evidence of a crime could be located in the vehicle, it did not give them probable cause to circumvent the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement in the search of the vehicle. In other words, they're saying it might have given them reasonable suspicion, but not probable cause, and probable cause is required for the automobile exception. Well, that leaves us with one other possibility. It leaves us with the second Gantt exception or the second Gantt holding. And the court shot that down as well and said the warrantless search of the automobile fares no better under the second Gantt exception of the search incident to arrest. Because as, as previously discussed, the search incident to arrest exception allows the police to search a vehicle incident um, to the occupant's arrest um, if they have a reasonable belief the vehicle contains evidence of the offense of the arrest. And, and um, 
that's the second Gantt exception, right? The, the first Gantt exception doesn't apply because he's not in the car when they go to, to search the car. And so the whole wingspan thing is inapplicable. So the only way that the, the second Gantt exception um, would be the only way for the search incident, the vehicle's uh, search incident to arrest would be okay. But he wasn't, it wasn't reasonable to believe that evidence uh, for which the, the crime for which he was arrested would be found on the car. Remember, he, he wasn't arrested for drugs. He was arrested for the fleeing and eluding. And, and there's no, uh, and as in the Gantt, uh, the case itself, there's no, uh, there's no reason to believe that evidence of that crime will be found in the vehicle. And so the second Gantt exception did not apply such that the vehicle could be searched incident to arrest so it couldn't be searched under the automobile exception because there's no probable cause it couldn't be searched under the second gan exception because it wasn't reasonable to believe that, that evidence of the crime of the uh, arrest the offense of the arrest would be found in the vehicle and so therefore there was no exception that applied to this warrantless search of the vehicle and so the evidence in the vehicle was excluded as well Every once in a while, you get a nugget with uh, a decision, an appellate decision out of one of the circuits. And the Seventh Circuit, in this particular opinion, did an outstanding job of setting forth the history and the purpose of the exception for the search incident to arrest. And it's, it's just did a wonderful textbook um, explanation. A law school student should read this. Police officers should read this. It, it, does, it really frames the issue well. And notwithstanding whether you agree or not, whether the first uh, GAN exception should apply to containers, it's just a very well-articulated very well put together opinion, and I recommend uh, that you download a copy of it uh, and 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 read the opinion for yourself. It does a really good job of explaining, and even in some of the dif differentiating between other cases, it does a good job. We we have some really good takeaways um, from this decision. Uh, well, obviously, the the first takeaway is is that if you're in the third, the seventh the ninth or the 10th circuits, the first scan exception is going to apply to container searches incident to arrest. And you're going to be, um, they're going to apply that whole concept of whether or not they have access to it and whether or not they're secured. Um, it, you're going to make that type of uh, look um, and apply that, the, that ruling, the first scan exception to containers and those wingspan searches of containers. So that's the first takeaway. Uh, something that's really important to point out, and I didn't get into them art articulating the differentiating this from other cases that the government had argued that applied. There was a case that the government brought up where the person was standing next to a duffel bag, and the and the, the and the court held in that case that it was accessible because it wouldn't take much for him to drop down and gain access to it, even though he was handcuffed. Um, the court the court put a lot of emphasis on the fact that Davis in this case was on his stomach, handcuffed behind his back and on his stomach, and the backpack was out of reach. And, and also the fact that there were three police officers surrounding him and no passers-by that had access to the bag. If he had been standing next to the bag with other people nearby, the analysis might have been different. It might have been a different um, outcome. And so the fact that he was lying on his stomach, um, surrounded by three officers, handcuffed behind his back, took it a, took it outside of that the the realm of arguing that he could drop to the ground and get to it. So 
if he had been standing, maybe if they just stood him up next to the bag um, before they searched it, it might have the, the outcome might have been different. And but the, here's the number one takeaway, and I'll, I'll mention it last, but it's the it is the most important takeaway. Re, you've got to remember every single exception. And remember when you've got a warrantless search, it's presumptively unreasonable, and the burdens on us to show burdens on the government to show that there is a a, a an exception that's applicable. All of the judicially recognized exceptions have purposes. There's a purpose to them, and and there are requirements. And um, and if you you need to understand what the purposes are of every JRE before you apply these judicially recognized exceptions, it's important that that you um, that you understand what the purposes are and getting back to to gant you know gant went back to chimmel and we always need to get back to chimmel and chimmel um, in the chimmel case the court said look there are two purposes of this whole concept the search incident to arrest exception one of them is officer safety to either prevent the escape of the arrestee or to prevent them from gaining access to a weapon and combine that's an officer safety issue. Or um, the second purpose is the destruction or the removal of evidence to prevent the, the person from gaining access to and either removing or destroying the evidence. So th- these are the two purposes. And if if your search incident to arrest is not meeting one of the two purposes, um, as the court reminded us in this case by applying the Gantt first uh, Gantt uh, exception to containers, uh, then you don't meet the purposes of Chimmel. And so we need to think about that. And uh, when we're doing the search incident to arrest, think about that. Who knows where the other circuits are going to head with this, you know, where the, what the other eight, eight circuits are going to do. Um, but it's if you're not in the third, seventh, ninth, or tenth circuits, it's still something that maybe you should take to heart and um, it's something that you should consider when you're doing your search incident to arrest of backpacks or boxes or other containers um, that are in the possession of the arrestee at the time of arrest. Well, that's it for this episode. I want to remind you to check out our website at www.lea.one. Our name is our website address. It's our URL, LEA1. It's what you type in the browser, and that's what you get. I'd also like to remind you that LEA One is the only commercial legal training provider which meets all of, of the following criteria, has all of the following credentials. Every LEA One instructor is a Fletzi certified senior legal instructor with years of experience training tens of thousands of law enforcement officers across the country. Um, a very, very important uh credential and something we're the only ones that can claim that. Also, all LEA One instructors are former prosecutors with extensive criminal trial experience. All LEA One courses are professionally designed by certified curriculum development specialists, and all LEA One lesson plans are continuously updated and are peer-reviewed annually for accuracy and sufficiency. We provide professional legal training at LEA One, and that is the LEA One difference. LEA One is a division of V-Stars U.S. Incorporated and is a service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. Go to the LEA One website and check out our schedule of courses, upcoming courses, some uh, taught live, face-to-face in your area, and others taught live online. And we don't use a webinar platform. We don't have online webinars. We have online courses. We use a virtual classroom, the Adobe Connect virtual classroom space. 
which enables us to interact just like we would in a classroom. So you can come see the Leo One difference with our online, our live online courses. We also have courses on demand. One of the more popular ones, the legal aspects of traffic stops on demand on Learn Blue, the Leo One Learning Management System. You can find out more about all of this again at the Leo One website, www.lea.one. This presentation is provided for purely academic purposes. I'm fond of saying I'm a lawyer, but I'm not your lawyer. And what I mean by that is that I do not provide formal legal advice through these presentations. No part of this presentation is offered, nor should it be construed as legal advice. If you need formal legal advice regarding any part of this presentation or have legal questions, you should consult with your attorney.